So what this is, really, is seeing Kim Jong-il, but like the playground years. Actual fucking dragons. Ba 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 ba. If a child of the forest called Bulbo turns up, I'm, I'm not going to be very happy. It's not your dad's fantasy. <laughs> that sounded a bit wrong when I said that. <laughs> yeah, it did. <laughs> Welcome to the tenth and final episode of Shark Liver Oil's coverage of George R. R. Martin's famous book, A Game of Thrones. I'm Matt. I'm Dave, hello. And we've come a long way, Dave. We've come a long way, baby. From the frozen wall in the north to the balmy, if uh, balmy in sort of a barbarian sense as well, conditions across in Essos and Vastothrak. We've visited King's Landing. We've been up the mountains of the Erie. We've, uh, we've even had a bit of a wander down a few of the little back roads of Westeros and it's all led to here but just as a quick summary of what we do this is kind of a a, I suppose a cousin podcast to the ones that look at the TV series what we do is we take the book and break it down into 10 parts which roughly follow the same structure as the Game of Thrones series but our focus is squarely on the books and um, every week we give you a sort of part of the book to read and then at the end of that week, we do a podcast discussing that part. It's quite simple, really, Dave. It is. Although, yeah. hang on, no, I have, I, I, we're doing more than one a week at the moment, though, aren't we? Well, we are, but, I mean, you know, it's just because at the moment we're, we're sort of firing these out at a slightly faster rate because we want to catch up to, um, to be ready to do sort of series four at the same time as it is actually broadcast on HBO. This is the final part. So um, when we last left off um, it was a real shocking moment and uh, we had just had a chapter with Arya um, where she saw her dad Ned um, have his head cut off spoiler alert (laughs) (laughs) I hope no one's listening to this in the wrong order that was absolutely (laughs) magnificent spoiler alert (laughs) yeah Um, I think the the, the sort of genuine general sort of trust you need to have here is we won't um, spoil anything beyond the part of the book that we've read up to here but um, yeah anything before and up to up to and including um, the part of the book we're reading obviously we'll be talking about so you're going to get spoiled um, okay so the next chapter we come back with a chapter about Bran and uh, he is uh, you know it, it's a bit of a it's a bit strange with Bran at the moment because you feel like he's just kind of the the last guy standing in a a place where everybody else has gone off to do large valiant things Um, when we started this book Winterfell was full of his family and his household and all these different people and slowly um, everyone's gone now and it's just sort of Bran and Rickon and the maester and uh, as we see Winterfell's quite weak at the moment because there were just they're trying to get boys in to man the walls and stuff because everybody's gone yeah um, gone south as part of this war a lot of people went south with Ned when he went to go as Hand of the King and then everyone else who was sort of up to much in terms of fighting went down with Rob to, to fight this war yeah 
so you have this it's really weird that it's that they were strong enough to think about going off to war and you know to be like we will defend our honor on the field of battle no matter where that battle may be uh, and then but the consequence of that is being massively weakened and i think um yeah i mean I, I don't know maybe in this day and age we've got a bit used to wars being fought whenever we hear about them on the news between like unassailable military might of like nato or whatever and, yeah. and smaller forces but that's not the way it was back then you could be the sort of power of your particular region but once you went off to war, you were making a decision to irrevocably weaken yourself. You're just taking a bet that you'll get weaker, slower than the people you're trying to fight. Yeah, and it's just this idea of pretty much everything stops, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. there's, I think in the series there's a, a scene similar to this where um, a guy comes in and says, look, there's no one to sort of repair our um, our holdfast because everyone's gone, all the, sort of, all the people who do that kind of manual labour are obviously they're also the same kind of people who could swing a sword if they need to. Mm. So they've all headed off t- to war. Yeah. Okay, so um, we have this Bran. Uh, to be honest, it seems that for a while now, Bran's whole purpose is just to sit there and dream. Um, he's been having these premonitions, and uh, <clears throat> he has a premonition about his dad's death. Um, he he dreams about meeting him in the crypt, which is where the... Uh, it's, it's where the sort of the bodies of the of the Starks are laid to rest, mm. and um, this is this is basically what happens here. And they they end up going down to the crypts, Bran and, and Lunwin, and uh, they see all these different uh, you know all these different statues of the Starks who've gone before, and uh, it's kind of a creepy scene. And it ends with Lunwin being attacked by a. Uh, Shaggy Dog, which is Rick, if you remember Rickon, who's the youngest <laughs> Stark who we never hear of. Um, it's his dog. I love that um, he called he, his dog Shaggy Dog. Yeah. <laughs> I love but that everybody else calls it that as well. It's such a childish name. Everybody's like <laughs> yeah. kind of. You, so you've got this maester, this kind of. This guy who manipulates the fates and has knowledge beyond the knowledge of man running around the castle <laughs> going, Shaggy Dog, Shaggy Dog, come here, Shaggy Dog. Come on, who's a big yeah. goop off then? <laughs> yeah, and it suggests the name suggests this kind of docile, nice, sort of lumbering kind of beast. Labradoodle. It? But I mean, <laughs> this thing is this thing is dangerous. It, it's it's kind of because Rickon is is this sort of four year old boy who no one seems to be able to look after properly. Mm. He's just he's gone a bit feral and a bit wild, and that means his massive wolf is just the same. So it's been we find out before that it's been chained up for a while because it keeps attacking people for no reason, and that's no joke when this, yeah. when this wolf sort of almost the size of a horse, and. Um, uh, I mean, quite how they managed to, to to chain it up, I don't know, but uh, it seems Rickon's managed to slip past the guards and let it out, and um, it ends up yeah attacking Lunwin and uh, doing some real damage to his arm. It's a, it's a serious attack, this. Yeah, yeah, and and yeah, well, if nothing else, it's a cautionary tale, isn't it? About you know, don't make parenting decisions based on who you want to <laughs> go to war with because. It sounds like a good idea at the time, and then all of a sudden you're beheaded, your wife's gone back home, and your kids are stuck in a massive castle failing to control their wolves properly. I, we've all been there. It's a common mistake. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, a, a lot of this scene is built around two sort of separate points of view. One is 
um, from both Rickon and Bran, where they um, are talking about things like visions of the seeing the father and uh, the stories of the children of the forest and things like that. And on the other side, you've got Lunwyn, who's sort of teaching them, and he's sort of a very empirical figure. And he, you know, he he doesn't believe in any of these stories. It's just you know. Is almost very scientific in the way he approaches things, and facts are facts only if you can, you know, um, prove them beyond all reasonable doubt. Obviously, mm. um, we get a bit of a history lesson about how uh, about these th- people called the children of the forest, and these are sort of basically um, little creatures that look like children, and they've been around. They were around, you know, hundreds of years ago, and they used to li- apparently they used to live in Westeros before any people arrived and then when the first men arrived they sort of had this bit of a fight and in the end uh the children of the forest sort of fled north um i think i mean there's quite a lot to it and like, we probably best not get into it too much of them shall, shall, shall we shall we get into this well, now i, I suppose it's just i don't know right i mean time, I, I i think it's interesting i don't i think to get the full force of it you've got to read the book but there were yeah. some interesting little bits because i'm a sucker for backstory i love the idea of big worlds with massive myths and so on um, yeah. And so this was really interesting to me because part of the whole kingliness thing in a place that's mm. supposed to run like Westeros is, is this idea of legitimacy being, you know, we've been here forever almost. But actually, yeah. I mean, of course, it's that's never true. Never, no matter where you go, there was always somebody who was there first. Yeah. Um, and uh, so so that that whole idea of this realm which feels very historical and well-established has actually, you know, not been around, um, mm. in, you know, in this sort of thousand-year scheme of things uh, for that long. I'll tell you what I wondered, actually. I mean, it's quite an obvious question, but these, um, what are they called? The, the the original, the first, whoever it is? There are two lots. So you got the you got the first men, yeah. who um, who are the people the, the people who first arrived, and they had this sort of running battle with the children of the forest, children and then the they forest. sort of made peace, right? Yeah, and then and then you have a, a second lot of men who came over called the Andals, and they're the ones who brought the seven gods with them. So they oh. burned all the they burned all the heart trees and got rid of all the um, the children of the forest in the south, yeah. and that's when these sort of children of the forest fled north. And have ended up even further north beyond the wall. There you so go. the legend goes. Well, yeah. so bringing us to the question: Are the children of the forest a myth, or are they the wildlings, or are they the White Walkers? Ah, what do you think? Or, or, or are they none of the above? I suppose. <laughs> and that would be brilliant. <laughs> you, never know. you set up a whole world with a real slow burn story about mysterious people coming from the north, and then you drop a hint <laughs> about a group who turn out to have just gone up there and set up like little fishing villages or something just like the, the wild walkers yeah. yeah we see him i suppose but um nothing to do with us no certainly not i mean the the the, di- the difficulty is with trying to work out if they are one of the other groups is that um th- i think an argument against that would be that the description of these of the children of the forest are they look like children so they're tiny almost like little people oh um and and obviously we've seen we've, oops yeah <laughs> And obviously, we've seen from from the, the impression I get from wildlings is they're they're just like they're just people, yeah, they're like barbarians. And the White Walkers is obviously described very differently as well as we've gone into, yeah. So, um, yeah, un- unless they've, I suppose that there's a, there's a possibility that they've changed over time and become yeah. something else. That's true. Or, 
or he's setting himself up for a Hobbit tribute storyline in book four or book five. Because I, I haven't got that far Possibly. yet. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> you came across Hobbits, and instead of being like really kind of lovely, woodsy, Englishy kind of chilled out people who just want to smoke their pipes, we're just like yeah. absolute feral bastards <laughs> <laughs> running around biting on people's legs. If a child of the forest called Bulbo turned up, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to be very happy. I was going to say, I would be <laughs> deeply disappointed in George Martin as an imaginative force. <laughs> Bulbo and Frudu. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, so 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 uh, Lewin goes up to his sort of tower and uh, starts to try and patch himself up after this attack because um, the, the 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 wolf is is stopped actually by uh, Bran's wolf Summer and they end up having a fight in, in the in the crypt mm. and in the end they sort of they stop and Lewin can go upstairs and tend to his own wounds and. As the as the two is talking to the two children about this premonition they've had about the father dying, effectively, mm. um, a raven arrives with that very news to mm. say that their father has died, which is which is both very strange and obviously very sad as well. Cause it's strange as far as you know, showing that uh, Lewin, who is uh, this, as we say, this scientific mind, mm. um, suddenly thinks. Wow, so that so they they did sort of know something was coming, it seems. Yeah, yeah. And um what do you think's going on here? I mean, so we've seen, you know, Bran the Dreamer seems to dream things that are real and um and you know, you've got other things like White Walkers who seem not to be alive or are alive, zombies the returned, whatever. Like Yeah. Is it is it magic? Is there somebody is there some massive malevolent force behind all of this? stuff or or is it just kind of a is this the way the world really works it's just gone dormant for many years sort of like a volcano exploding after a couple of centuries yeah i think that's the uh that's the idea that seems to be running through this book and then brought more broadly into the others is this idea of some kind of it's a, it is a fantasy world where magic did, did exist but it's gone away for a long time and slowly it seems to be creeping back again and I think the idea is that it it went away when the dragons did. They were the sort of um, oh. so the the, the 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 big marker as to as to how much magic's knocking about is is how many of these dragons are flying around. And I suppose oh. if, as you see in the um, when Tyrion is wandering around the uh, the basements of. Uh, of the Red Keep in King's Landing, he's seeing these dragon skulls, and they get smaller and smaller, and it's almost as if the sort of the, the magical sort of element is ebbing away, and, it, and you can see it through how the the dragons get smaller and more stunted, and then eventually the last of them die, and you're left with what is a more familiar version of a medieval world. Yeah, but and and where we are now is that all of that stuff's starting to come back. Yeah, especially to what, especially at the end of this part, yeah. it certainly seems that way, doesn't it? <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Okay, so so next up, it's a, a chapter about Sansa, um, and she's obviously in a very bad way. She's she's grieving at the loss of her father. Uh, she, by the way, largely at her own hand. Can we put the, can we well, put that in there? Yeah, she seems to have played a quite a. I mean, she definitely played a part, didn't she, in mentioning this plan for. To flee the city to the queen, um, which is, which was obviously a, a, not a particularly 
great thing to do. Yeah, well, <laughs> insofar as the future of a father was concerned, exactly. And I think it is—it's a truly knucklehead move. Although I actually, um, I had a conversation um, with uh, with a friend of mine who's been listening to the podcast and knows the books really well. Um, mm. And she had a go at me. Actually, well, I had a go at me. You know, she she um, she she slapped me on the wrist and she was like, um, "You're being very unsympathetic to Sansa." Um, yeah, and um, and I think I think I am because I do think that she's just like she's a self-absorbed wannabe princess, um, mm. and the, and I think this is one of the great examples of her of her kind of self-importance doing something terrible. Um, yeah, well, I mean, last time when you see, you know, she she goes and tells the queen because she doesn't want to have to leave because she wants to marry this kid that she fancies, and it ends yeah. up with her father getting killed. Um, yeah. I mean, I, th- but, I think, I think, sorry, go on. I was just going to say, but I think, um, uh, my friend, she did make a very good point in that she was like, you know, she's a teenage girl, Sansa. She's, yeah. you know, you know, I, I never having been a teenage girl, I can't say this for certain, but as I understand it there, you know, she was like, yeah, you know, this is quite an accurate sketching of the the kind of the way that 13 year old girls think. So yeah. um so maybe I am being too harsh on her. I think she's acting crazy. Um but um uh yeah, I I, I don't know. Maybe maybe this is just realism rather than just a, a purposefully infuriating character. I think there is something in that sort of just being a 15 being a teenage girl because you know, I suppose since Sansa goes down to King's Landing, um she has a father there and her mum's not there anymore and Cersei kind of takes up that role because she's quite good at being manipulative yeah. takes up that role as being sort of a second mum and and that is just naturally what you do as a teenager is you play mum off against dad don't you and if dad tells you you can't do something <laughs> then you go to mum and I suppose it's just an an example of that an kind extremely of, uh, kind of politically charged version of that I, I hadn't really thought of it that way but I think you're right that's funny yeah, but obviously it has wider consequences, and she's uh, she's seen that now. Um, it's it's obvious that her relationship with Joffrey is still dreadful as well. Although it, it seems the Queen still wants them to marry, or still wants to keep her in that position because uh, it suits her politically at the moment. Yeah, but can, I mean, uh, can you imagine? Like, I'm sorry, you still you want me to marry this kid who told me that he was going to set my father free and then got a little bit overheated at the sight of a big crowd and had him killed instead. Oh, hold me yeah. back. I am filled yeah. with desire. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, you'd think if Sansa had any um, feelings that the Queen still had her best interests at heart, she'd realise now that that isn't the case. <laughs> um, it's interesting... I don't know, the, do you uh, reckon she's, she's cottoned on to it yet? She made me think the Queen's still a nice person. <laughs> When um, Samarin turns, she 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 talks about and she thinks it, there's this monologue about how um, internal monologue about her different members of the King's Guard and how they treat her, and um, the the one she's particularly scared of is a guy called Samarin, who's this one who's got a uh, these dull grey eyes and he, his expression never changes and he's kind of a creepy kind of guy anyway. Cold dead no eyes of a killer. Really, Exactly, and no one understands what's going on behind him. Mm. And um, she realises that um, he doesn't even uh, sort of feel ashamed of what he's doing when he beats her up for Joffrey or anything like that, because he doesn't really see it. She realises he doesn't really see her as a person. It's just a th- you know a thing, really. Mm. 
and any there, there's no real humanity there which yeah. is a, a realization she comes to as well especially after everything she she's learned and been told about knights um, in this romanticized view of the yeah, world it's uh this this the last few pages have contained an awful lot of growing up for sansa haven't they yeah um, and you know i i, I mean it, it's sad that it came to this but let's hope she learns the lessons because if you know it's clear the only two characters in the book have really proceeded according to a rule book instead of according to you know like what's going to what's going to work for them best in the real world you know mm. ned's died and sansa's now a prisoner very much against her will and he's mm. been being kind of railroaded into a marriage so let's hope she kind of grows out of it a bit and um, and can find a way out but i i can't see how that would happen can you well, no, it's going to be hard to see what happens going forward with that, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I've got to be quite careful because I have read um, the the later books, but uh-huh. yeah. Oh, <laughs> this is. So I as well admit that this is this is the uh, this is the frustration of this. I mean, this is the great thing about this, but I'm reading along now, like I'm yeah. I'm, I'm chunk by chunk reading what we read which means yeah. I'm sitting here chatting on about who's going to kill who and who's going to conquer who and you <laughs> must be sitting there going nah you're totally wrong you don't even know <laughs> uh, to be honest there's, there's an element of I kind of wish that I could do that myself um, but uh, it, it just I don't I don't feel particularly good about it it just um, it just adds an extra level of annoyance to how you know I've just got to be a bit more careful about predictions that I make <laughs> so sometimes I'll, I'll make a correct one and sometimes I'll sort of suggest something that oh you're throwing uh, a red herring a different route oh yeah, well, I think, Matt I, I think the only that's the only way to do it isn't it because otherwise yeah, no, we've, um, of course, of course. anyone listening will be able to as soon as I make a prediction we'll realise it's got to come true um, anyway you, you, you heard um, it here first ladies and gentlemen yeah. Matt's not to be trusted <laughs> <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> uh, th- th- this this one this uh, bit ends with uh, this 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 passage where Joffrey uh, it seems to delight in in torturing um, his bride to be, which is uh, is never a good basis for a happy and long marriage, um, and he, he takes her up to uh, to see a few heads on spikes, including her dad and um, her old teacher, you know, Septim Mordain, who used to. They killed um, the scepter. Yeah, oh. and that—that's a bit of a. I mean, I think she's only a very minor character, the scepter. But you, it's another example of you know just how low um, the Lannisters really go with this. That's the kind of thing where I think a lot of houses would consider killing someone like a scepter below the belt, but it yeah. doesn't seem the case with Joffrey. Well, I—I I, I don't know. Can we imagine the person that Joffrey wouldn't find it pleasing to kill? <laughs> you know, like he, yeah. he, like you say, this scene he seems to take such a sadistic pleasure. You know, and and the killing of Ned itself was just so pointless. You've got you've got like a grade A gold plated hostage there, or you could kill him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't think there's a lot going on in Joffrey's head when there's somebody in front of him who's vulnerable. Apart from how can I cause you the most pain? Yeah, yeah. Um, the Sansa actually considers uh, trying to assassinate Joffrey at this point and trying to push him off this wall. Um, and as she's thinking of doing it, uh, the Hound, um, in sort of a, do it, basically doing his job, I suppose, he sort of steps between them and um, he sort of 
distracts her by sort of sort of basically cleaning her up because she's just been beating her beating about again um I mean, the fact that he's done that, the hound, is, is obvious because it's his job. But the way he does it is quite sympathetic towards Sansa because um, he doesn't say... He doesn't make it clear what her intention was, even though it's obvious that he's seen what she was thinking of doing. Mm. Um, he just diffuses the situation <clears throat> without anybody else getting hurt, which seems an unusual step for him to take. He's not, he's not really the most compassionate of characters. No, I... Why do you think he's done that? Has he got a bit of a soft spot for Sansa, or is this the start of a, you know, him showing the contempt mm. he has for this, this boy king that he's followed, <coughs> you know, so yeah. so uh, consistently. Um, I I wonder I wonder if he does sort of quite, um, you know, feel some kind of sympathy for Sansa. It's hard really because we've nothing really to suggest that the Hound feels sympathy for anything at the moment. <laughs> he's he's basically himself, just, I think. yeah, he's basically just just this hired, uh, hired sword, which he was quite happy to. I suppose that there was the uh, there was the example where um, Renly was uh, Loris was going to get killed by the Mountain's brother, and the Mountain stepped in. Remember at the tournament? You mean the, and that the, the, the Hound? The Hound was. Sir Loras was going to get killed by the mountain, who is the hound's brother. That's right, yeah. Sir Loras was going to kill by yeah, the, the hound's brother, and, and the hound stepped in to stop it. Mm. And um, it showed there was some kind, it seemed to be some kind of sense of, some kind of code, the independent code. Um, some sense of moral code independent to his instructions from Joffrey, put it that way. Well, and also, which you can imagine, I wonder if that moral code... Well, maybe I'm. I'm just surprised to see something like that moral code operating outside of where his brother is. Because it seems to me, whenever his brother's around, he's defined because he hates his brother so much. He's just going to do whatever mm. his brother wouldn't do. Yeah. Whereas yeah. his brother's Miles, his brother's still, as far as we know, galloping throughout the hinterlands, killing and burning villages just for the sheer joy of it, trying to, yeah. you know, continuing to provoke mm. this war. Um, and and so I wonder what makes him do it here because it's. It's different from the from the tournament. Isn't it? And I mean, we we shall see. This is just an interesting thing. Another good example. Of yeah. Quite a minor character, actually doing something quite um, uh, surprising. Yeah. Uh, let's move on to uh, the next chapter, which is Daenerys, um, and she's recovering from when we last left her. She was being carried into this tent where all kinds of freaky shit was going down. Um, oh yeah. So uh, this was the this is the uh, this witch basically trying to bring Drogo back from mm. death wasn't it yeah yeah so she, she's um, she's recovering she's been haunted by visions of Viserys and various other things and um, when she wakes up her first thing her first words are um, I want to hold and like this is like a pause and I think I mean I was and as most people I assume was expecting her to say my baby because she was having a baby last time we heard and she her sentence ends um the dragon egg um so her first thought is to hold this this precious dragon egg yeah which is weird because i mean they've been kind of MacGuffins to this point haven't they they've been like sort of little little magical bits of stone um which don't actually do anything but everybody seems to be willing to pay a lot of money for um yeah whereas so why is she so attached to these you know pebbles you know nicely painted pebbles what's that about there seems to be some kind of deeper connection, doesn't there? Yeah. Now, the it turns out that her baby did die upon upon birth, so you know her child is dead. Yeah. And um, the 
the the my the, 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 this this witch who delivered her um it seems to delight in tell, recounting this hor- horrific story of the fact that the the baby was actually this kind of monstrous creature and it it seems to be it seems to be that that was the case because of the way you know of where she gave birth and the fact that there was all this all this black magic circling her as, as it happened yeah i mean she she um Daenerys blames Sajora for this, not in a sort of a, an angry way, sort of in in a more of a resigned way. And you can see that Jorah seems to blame himself as well for carrying her into that area as she was having the baby. Yeah, yeah, and it's just it's creepy and nasty, isn't it? Um, mm. As it's supposed to be. Um, but I do wonder what sort of effect this is going to have on her because she's you know in this book she's gone from being a, an exploited kind of waif. Albeit of high birth, to mm. to you know, queen of an incredibly savage civilization, to yeah. um, almost a mother, to right now having lost in really freaky circumstances both her husband and her son, and she's yeah. what is she fourteen? This character, yeah. I mean, yeah. what's this going to yeah. do to her head? Yeah, it is. It's an incredible, um, just just amount of sadness to bear isn't it yeah. and, and just stress and yeah it, it must be the kind of thing that uh, would would crush a, a character of sort of lesser stature i suppose yeah um she she goes to to see what the her sort of great sacrifices has brought because the whole point of this black magic was to bring drogo back who was who was dying yeah um as she goes over to see him she realizes that most of her carl the um sort of the group the army and the um and the sort of group of people she had has gone um uh, because once drogo isn't strong enough to lead anymore it fractions and breaks it breaks away and it's all gone now yeah. so all she's left with is just a group of sort of the poor and sick and hungry people who aren't strong enough to to join a new group so her sort of whole power base has been de- has been decimated there yeah and it turns out Carl Drogo as well is is just a shadow of his former self. He's effectively in a coma, isn't he? I mean, he, he kind of he can be led around, he can stand up and walk around, but he he doesn't respond really to to anybody. Yeah, and he's in a almost comatose state. Yeah, there'll be no more witty wordplay from um, from Carl Drogo. No, not. no more, <laughs> no more crown for a king. <laughs> Carl Drogo make a funny, and I think <laughs> you know more seriously. What is the company in Barnsley going to do without its foremost IT technician? <laughs> well, this is exactly right. <laughs> we go to the hard well, issues. Everyone is lost out. <laughs> um, so there's this conversation um, after Daenerys realizes just you know how small a sort of reward she's got for losing her childhood if you like yeah. um, she has this conversation with the witch with, with the Maegi uh, is it the Maegi or is it, however uh, it's, it's a made up word just make up a way to pronounce yeah. it Phil <laughs> she talks to the Phil <laughs> yeah we'll call her M- Miri Mazdor which is her, her actual name right. and um, if you remember she, Daenerys says I, I saved you from from being raped because at the time um, this whole town for the lamb men was being sacked and put to the torch and if you remember Daenerys walked through the town sort of stopping people from being raped yeah. and um, and this and Miriam Asdor says well you know I'd already been raped three times by that point by the time you came across me 
and um, my entire village had been burnt to the ground by your people and she she goes through all these different bodies that she saw like this this body of this child which she'd helped um, recover from an illness not a few months ago yeah. and um, the body of a baker and somebody else and just all her all her friends that she knew yeah and and it just it's a really interesting point this isn't it of how Daenerys has tried to have it both ways here insofar as she's um, she's part of this system which which destroys towns and villages like that but she's also tried to ease her own conscience by in her own way trying to help individual people mm. but it's just it's just not enough really especially as far as as far as this witch is concerned yeah and it's you know again trust george martin to make even a superficially extremely evil character you know kind of rounded and sympathetic and so on um and it's it's a good point you know this is a um in a way it's a good point about like daenerys desire to do moral things in this spectacularly immoral world you know, yeah. is it enough? Is it ever going to be enough? Is she on a hiding to nothing? You, yeah. you know, and maybe the lesson of all of this is that um, that she'll take from this, and it wouldn't surprise me, given the rest of this world, it wouldn't surprise me if she did, just decide that there's nothing there's nothing for it and sod trying to be nice and I'm just going to... Um, I'm just going to be, you know, another exploiter and another whatever, but... Um, or this could be a really interesting moment. You know, she could... She could choose to sort of, as well as doing nice things, try to change the yeah. structures that make nasty things happen. Yeah, I mean, maybe the, the message that comes out of this is that sometimes compromise just isn't enough with this kind of thing. And yeah. I mean, I mean that, that's part of the what I suppose what the, the witch is saying with how she's brought Drogo back as well. Yeah. That he's, you know, she... She said, "I think Daenerys says, you know, I saved your life. You're still alive, and um, and Miriam Asdor says, well, look at look at Drogo. You know, see what life is worth when the rest is gone. Uh. And it's it's this point of you know, you can save someone's life, but if you let everything else that happens around them go to shit yeah. and be responsible for that, then what's the point? Yeah, and and you know, it's a good point, well made." But it does raise the possibility, doesn't it, that Miri Mazdur has purposefully, you know, dicked around somebody uh, who she was um, who was expecting to be helped in order to make yeah, sort of a grand I, I theatrical think, point. I think she's done this on purpose. Yeah, I think you're right. And she says when uh, when she's talking about the um, Daenerys' baby, he's died. She says, you know, he was going to be this all conquering warrior, and now he won't put any towns and cities to the torch anymore. So she feels that she's right in in stopping this this baby being born the same way that a similar way that um that Robert wanted to do oh. which which gives you which brings up loads of questions and um and it makes it very difficult to know what to feel here because i you know your visceral reaction is you should you know it's monstrous what this witch has done yeah but she's making a, a very um, complex defense of what, is what she did really yeah. obviously as far as Daenerys is concerned that isn't nearly good enough yeah. killed a child yeah. but um, and also in the end we get this very sad and uh, moving scene where Daenerys ends up killing uh, Khal Drogo as well yeah. sort of a mercy killing if you like yeah I mean and again 14 years old mm. 14 years old and she's had all this like what's that going to do 
Yeah. Like, I mean, presumably, presumably she's in this story for a reason. This is something that's kind of like, I was, when I started reading this, I was expecting her storyline to be integrated somehow with all the other storylines in the book. Yeah. <laughs> and they're not in the slightest um, yet. So I am still very, very curious about, like, what, what reflection this is going to have on, you know, the struggle for the Iron Throne. Yeah. Is she gonna? Is she just be gonna lose all sense of human empathy and just become an absolutely merciless conqueror, or is she gonna, you know, is she gonna try and be a sort of reformer, moral hero type? Um, yeah. Out of this, I wonder. No, um, we 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 move away from Daenerys now over to uh, Tyrion, and he's sitting in a war council as uh, we we hear that as a as a reaction to um, Rob's very successful bait and switch where he sacrificed a large chunk of his army to be able to to rout uh, Jamie Lannister's um Jamie Lannister's army mm. that uh the war isn't going so well for the Lannisters anymore um Tywin begins this uh he's obviously leading the discussions uh and Tywin begins it by saying they have my son and then the uh this discussion begins between a lot of Tywin's lieutenants, including Tyrion and this guy called Sir Harry Swift and the Mountain and uh Kevin Lannister, who's uh Tywin's uh Tyrion's uncle. Mm. Um and Tywin just sits there and listens and um is this kind of brooding presence as the rest of the the rest of his counsellors argue about what to do. We hear a bit more about what happened in in the, in these uh, in in Rob's successful attack on on Jamie's army, there's this uh, there's this description about this lord called Lord Brax, who's one of the knights who's died, and he died because he tried to sail across the river to help, um, and he was on this rickety raft dressed in full plate armor, and obviously he <laughs> fell off and sank to the bottom. Clearly, around. clearly an expert um, in combat, not logic. <laughs> Well, everybody else seems to think that this is, uh, you know, a tragedy, but a great example of someone being very gallant. Um, <clears throat> apart from Tyrion, who thinks to himself, he wonders if Lord Brax felt particularly gallant as he was being dragged to the bottom of his uh, of the river by all that steel that he was mistakenly wearing. Yeah. Um, it just shows how Tyrion's a, a, a step apart from this this system, isn't he? He's another great character who operates a, a step outside the uh, the conventional system. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very much, and with good reason. Um, I, I tell you what, I'm interested in, actually. Um, I, I have a really hard time imagining what contribution the mountain can make to this sort of a conversation because so far he's been presented as basically like, um, like a like a bad tempered hemorrhoid on legs. Do you know what I mean? Like he's he's been <laughs> yeah. he's been given no character at all. He's just he's just a proper psycho. Um, yeah. And we've seen him through through his interactions. So and he's eight eight foot tall or whatever it is. So I mean, yeah. is everybody else sitting around being really sort of kind of? Nightly and round table-ish and kind of like uh, a tragedy, but a death for the ages, for gallantry, for <laughs> honour. And then I just got you know the, the mountain hulking at the end of the table, going twat. Yeah, you wonder how much how Finesta's strategic mind the mountain has as well in terms of suggesting ideas. Mountain smash now. Like that's what he is, isn't he? He's the he's the Incredible Hulk without the occasional bouts of self control. I, I suppose the only reason he's there really is for Tywin to 
it's sort of as a, as a show of respect from Tywin just to show how important uh, Tywin yeah, considers yeah, him that's it, that's so just it, to keep him completely on side I don't think I think you're right I don't think Tywin uses him for his uh, <laughs> for his strategic thinking <laughs> so, you never know that'd be amazing <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, so, so Harris um, uh, suggests uh, the possibility of suing for peace which is completely slapped down by Tywin who just repeats what he said at the start but in just a louder voice saying they have my son obviously there's a there's no way there's going to be a peace uh, while that situation continues yeah yeah and well and then if that situation doesn't continue then there's no chance at all of the stark suing for peace no no and we have um we find out a bit more about the wider strategy in that uh, Renly, who remember fled King's Landing once uh, once King Robert died, has now claimed the throne. So there's a new <laughs> enemy in the field. What? And why? Yeah. Like on what basis? <laughs> Just because I really want it. <laughs> I think that's pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. yeah. Well, my brother was king, and I've got an older brother, and he's still alive. So, um, but uh, f- fuck it, I want to be king. I'm king, everybody. I'm king. It's, yeah. it's the ultimate I'm, entitled entitled younger aristocrat move, isn't it? Of course I can. Why can't I? You can't tell me what to do. Yeah. I mean, this this is, I think, an example where the series kind of did a better job than the book because it really comes out of nowhere, this, doesn't it? Yeah. The Renly claim. Um, whereas in, in the series, you have this you have this very... Um, you have this uh, gay relationship between... Um, between Renly and Soloris, oh, who's yeah, a, yeah. obviously a very rich uh, member of a very rich household, um, this is this is a this relationship's kind of implied in the book, but it's never explicit in the way it is in the series. And the the the, the sort of benefit that the series has is that it can um, use scenes there to show Renly's thought process as he decides that he should be the next king. Uh, Whereas here, yeah. he's, he's, he's a character that's so far removed, he just suddenly pops up out of nowhere, it seems, and decides that he wants to be the king. <laughs> and me, <laughs> and a me. Weird. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, but, I mean, this this has an effect on the, on the Lannisters' battle plan insofar as it means there's a very strong enemy that's appeared now on their sort of flank. And they've got to suddenly decide what on earth they're going to do because they risk being caught in between two uh, two powerful armies. Now they've still got Rob's army mm. to worry about, and now they've got this Renly putting together his own army. So obviously the Lannisters are very concerned at this point, and that's why there's these these thoughts of peace. Um, Tywin dismisses the the whole group, um, and he, they, they make this decision to sort of regroup at Harren Hall and then take things from there. So they're going to they're gonna retreat, effectively. Um, and Ty- Tywin is going to send Tyrion to King's Landing to try and sort of stop Joffrey making ridiculously bad decisions. Because they talk <laughs> about a few missteps. They talk about the fact that, obviously, they chopped Ned's head off, which was ridiculously stupid, considering how um, impossible it is to find a, a peace solution now in the North. Um, but there are these other things like promote. Obviously, Tywin is a, a real snob. He hates the idea that Jan Slint, this this uh, <laughs> City Watch guy who was a uh, who was a son of a butcher, is being uh, prom- is being given Harrenhal and being made a lord. Yeah. And he he thinks the decision to to get rid of Sebastian as well as the Lord Commander of the King's Guard is another stupid decision. Hmm. So he's basically sending Tyrion down to King's Landing to stop this kind of ridiculous stuff from happening. To give Joffrey it's effectively a slap, hamstringing him. 
yeah to, expectedly yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. um yeah and and so this is you don't get a lot of kind of um audience pleasing i think in this book like it's it, it's really interesting to watch but george martin very rarely gives you what you really really want but this mm. Tyrion, a character that you quite like based on his actions and so on being sent to give joffrey a character you despise a proper bitch slapping and you're just like yeah. i have to buy the next book for this alone yeah <laughs> um when 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 Tyrion when Tyrion's told that he's going to be sent to King's Landing and become the Hand of the King, he says to his dad because his dad's never liked him. He says, "You know, you've got loads of lieutenants and other people who could do this. Why are you sending me?" And um, and Tywin says, "Because you're my son." And you'd expect the reaction. I think in, even in the series, you think the reaction would be Tyrion thinking, "Oh, you know, finally some respect from Daddy." You know. Mm. Um, but his reaction is fury mm. because he thinks and he said you you bastard you've given up on Jamie oh. and and now you're turning to me and that's what he reads into that and it's probably true and he's thinking yeah. because it, there's been all this talk about trying to get Jamie back and this is the point where Tyrion thinks you've given up on your son and now you'd make, you're sort of making do with the next best thing that's me yeah so it's it, it doesn't there's no um it, it's a, it's a sort of decision that could sort of um, soothe the wounds a bit between these two characters but it doesn't at all and it's very clear in uh, when it, when it's when you see this through Tyrion's eyes mm-hmm. yeah and what that means as well of course is that Tywin Lannister you know far from you know his 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 overriding kind of um, uh, motivation being they have my son they have my son I have to get him back it's yeah. they have my son and that's a great excuse to grab more power um, what a I, I, no, I, yeah, I, I th- I th- no, I think I think he is genuinely upset about his <clears throat> about them having his son. But I think it's more they have my son. Not I'm worried about my son. It's what's going to happen to my legacy, oh, and his solution well, is to yeah. send Tyrion down there. Yeah, because yeah, he is so, he is a guy who everything is about the Lannister legacy. He yeah. he puts he puts that before everything else, and you see this throughout the throughout the books. Yeah. All right, fair enough. I think we've come at that from from two. Di- we've come at the same thing from two different directions. Basically, agree. Yeah. Like I think, I think the legacy he wants to assure is of greater power and his descendants on the throne. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so broadly, I agree. But I, I, I'm willing to believe that Tywin Lannister is that sort of reptilian in his in his <laughs> brain as to be like, well, my son's gone. Fuck it, I've got another one. Let's go to war. Um, yeah, you know. Um, possibly I'm not being nice enough to him, but oh, he is a shit, isn't he? Mm. Okay, uh, said everything. I think there's everything we need to say about that. Mm-hmm. Um, let's let's go let's go up to the wall to see uh, to check in with John for the last time for this book. Um, and he is he's about to run away from Castle Black. He's going to desert uh, because he wants to join uh, Rob and fight because he's heard that his father's been killed and yeah. and that's it now that's the final straw he was wavering before wasn't he when he heard about Rob calling the banners and his father being arrested mm-hmm. um, but now the fact that his father's been executed means he just can't stay in the Night's Watch anymore he's got to join this other fight 
Yeah, and while I understand that, this is a bit of a slow hand clap moment, isn't it? Like, what have the Night's Watch <laughs> spent all of their time drumming into people, you know? If you desert, yeah. then you'll be killed. You've made a vow. End of. Yeah. Uh, but he's still like, no, I'm going. Yeah. I I have a lot of sympathy for that, though, because if you think about loyalty, and these are the people, you know, it's his dad, and it's also his brother who he's grown up with. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and it's just, he obviously, when he left to go to the Night's Watch, he's still only a teenager, and he wouldn't have thought, remotely thought anything like this would have happened south. Um, I'm sure he would have imagined, you know, Ned and then Rob rule the north and he will eventually have this relationship like Ned and Benjamin had, where they'd be just sort of two people separated. But now things have changed so dramatically in the south, he feels he needs to act. I think there's an an interesting... He has some doubts as he's riding away and as he's he's riding south and fleeing. He's wondering what Rob's going to do because he thinks he'll be welcomed because of the because they're brothers. But he also remembers how Ned executed deserters from the wall. Yeah, and he just wonders what side Rob's going to come and down that, on. And that's Rob's job now, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and will he make an exception just because it's his brother? Mm. And if he well, and and I think I mean a lot of what we've seen is that he can't really afford to do that. You know, like no. his, like so much of Rob's credibility rests on continuing to act the Lord and not giving free passes to your brothers. So I think it's a really stupid move on on John's part. I understand why he's done it, and I'd probably, uh, I'd probably want to do the same. But mm. he's riding into a whole bag of trouble. Yeah, I wonder what would have happened if obviously John gets um, stopped by. Uh, some of his other sort of friends in the in the Night's Watch who chase after him and bring him back. Mm. Um, but if he had made it as far as Rob, would he? Do you reckon he would have been allowed to to back in? Or I I find it hard to see how Rob would have been able to do that. He couldn't have done, and it would have been a, it would have been a really heartbreaking moment because yeah. we've opened the or almost opened the whole story with what happens to deserters from the wall. So yeah. and Rob would know that he would have to kill him then and there. And mind you, mind you, Rob's now met up with his mother, who would probably be handing him a towel and cheering him on from the <laughs> sidelines. <laughs> yeah, yeah, John wouldn't get a lot of sympathy from that. Yeah, he, he wouldn't. Ironically, be riding into a camp full of friends there, would he? Um, yeah. Which is probably you know not very much to the benefit of of Rob because you know John's a good fighter, but yeah, all in, yeah. not a good move. Yeah. John, John's brought before um, Mormont, uh, the the old bear, the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, um, who, you know, uh, John at first wonders whether he's going to be executed when he's brought back, mm. but Mormont says quite brusquely, you know, if I executed every person who left the wall at night, um, we wouldn't have anybody left <laughs> because everybody does it. Let's be honest. I love um, Mormont, I really do, just for that sort yeah, of... Yeah, he's great, isn't he? Totally matter-of-fact, um, very bleak kind of sarcastic approach to being in charge of yeah. this fighting force he's like oh <laughs> sit the fuck down of course I'm not going to kill you I can't afford to do that yeah yeah he's a superb character uh, uh, moment yeah. and also he, he makes quite a, a good point to John as well he says I know I know you're really hurting about your family and uh, you know people you care about south are, are in danger and there's injustice going on but he says, you know, I'm I'm worried about my sister, uh, who's Mage Moment, who's the uh, the person in charge of of Bear Island, <laughs> if you remember, <laughs> which is one of is basically one of the houses, one of the bannermen to the Starks. Yeah. So she's she's taken her household and obviously her family 
to fight with Rob as well. Mm. And Moment's basically saying, look, I, I care about them, but I can't leave. And you can't, you know, once you take these vows, you've got to stay. Mm. Um, and then I think John's still in two minds, even with that, until the real kicker where he says, look, Mance Raider, who we've not really heard about before, he's this sort of guy who's pro- proclaimed himself king of the wildlings north of the wall. He says, this guy's Ooh. getting an army together and we're going to ride north to find out what the hell's going on and um, and I want you to come with me and this is where the real fight is and this is what convinces John to stay because he's got another battle to fight and he's got to pick which one rather than just sort of sitting and stewing in his juices up at the wall yeah. he's got yeah. some, some kind of more purpose now beyond just defending the wall yeah and um, and he's like you, that definitely appeals to a fourteen-year-old boy, doesn't it? <laughs> More than sort of sit here and think about what you've done. No, no, no. Come and have a fight over here. Yeah, um, works a lot better uh, than a sort of hypothetical thing. And in a way, this is this is a bit of a coming of age moment, I think, for John because he's like instead of thinking about the world as composed of stuff he wants to do and boring stuff he has to do, mm. it's now I've actually got a duty to this particular fight and this particular set of needs and this particular set of people and so on mm. rather than it just being like oh well he's my brother of course I'm going to go and fight for him you know he has to yeah. make some difficult decisions yeah um, okay let's go on to uh, Caitlin uh, Catelyn if you prefer um, it's Caitlin he's got an eye in it I'm telling you well um, I, I thought Caitlin but then I've been re-watching the series recently and uh, everyone calls her Catelyn so yeah, and I, I'm willing to trust. The, I suppose I'm willing to trust the series because they obviously work very closely with with the author. Um, so I, may uh, have, I, I, I might. I think I'm going to start calling her Catelyn. I'll, I'll try and if I remember, I'll call her Catelyn. But um, anyway, <laughs> um, so look, we we get um, we get a real um, feeling about of her grief here. She's obviously had the news that uh, her husband's been killed, and um, and it's it's really it's, it, I find that. Um, because Catelyn's such a tough character, um, these kind of moments are even more um, sort of affecting um, when, when a character like that, you're sort of seeing inside their head and what they're going through despite their outward appearance. Um, on top of that, on top of losing a husband, it turns out her father is on his deathbed as well. They arri- mm. the, uh, Rob's army's arrived at Riverrun now, which is Catelyn's... It's the big sort of power base in the Riverlands, isn't it? In between yeah, the yeah. Lannisters and the Starks, and it's big allies yeah. to the Starks. And um, yeah, uh, Caitlin's father, who's the Lord of River, and he's dying. Um, yeah. And he, when she goes to see him, and he remembers um, the battle, like you know, when uh, when Rob has actually come down and, and saved River and routed Jamie Lannister's army, and mm. her father sort of has heard heard the sounds of the battle. But that's as always, was only his uh, his only involvement, really, because he's on his deathbed, obviously. Yeah, and this is what lordship becomes. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's have a look. What's going on? Oh, um, we get a bit, we get a bit more about this relationship between the Blackfish and um, Caitlin's dad. Uh, Blackfish is Caitlin's uncle, who's uh, always been this unusual kind of character. He's uh, he's proven himself to be really quite useful for the for the Starks um, because he's he's proven to be a very useful ally um he knows what he's doing with sort of scouting and uh leading uh people in battle um caitlin goes to C- caitlin goes to find rob and um 
she walks through the the great hall in Riverrun, and Theon's there, sort of boasting about the battle. And it's just another little example of how Theon's o- older than Rob, but in a lot of ways, he's much less mature, isn't he? And he's recounting the stories. Yeah, certainly, he's he's more. Um immature now that Rob's had to go from being a boy to being a king in about three weeks. Yeah. Whereas Theon's just sort of moted along and it's like, oh, isn't this all a jolly wheeze kind of mode? Yeah. Uh, and 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 he's still he's a man boy. Yeah. Um, you know, because he's had no reason to grow up and get serious. Yeah. Um so um yeah, it's just another thing where it's like we haven't I, I Theon I feel like has been a much more peripheral character in the book in this book than he was in the first TV series. Like yeah. he got quite a bit of screen time. Mm. Yeah. Um but I, you know this is we start I mean we've seen it before but it, it just kind of reinforces that he he's sort of he's a bit of a cock, isn't he? For saying that he's part of the Stark household, he's a bit of a knob. Yeah. Like, and I was there fighting these people, and I was there fighting these people. It was enormous <laughs> fun. <laughs> yeah, he's a he's a massive sort of uh, self publicist, isn't he, Theon? He thinks yeah, an awful yeah, lot yeah. of himself. And um, yeah, the the difference between sort of Theon there and boasting in the hall about the battle, and then we switch to Rob, who's in the Godswood. Um, basically praying by the tree with his lieutenants so people like cast you know your guy Karstark and uh yeah, Mormons and there, Karstark. Yeah, umber and uh and glover i think so some so the, the basically the his his bannermen who keep the old gods they're they're just together in the godswood and, and he he really comes across again is this is this real leader isn't he rob and um, yeah. and he's got the he's now got this fierce uh, loyalty of these very tough, um, tough lords of the north. There's a, mm. a quite quite a, a tender moment with where Caitlin just sort of looks at him um, in this position, and she just wonders if she remembers that this was the place where she first kissed uh, Littlefinger, um, uh-huh. and it's just sort of she has that memory of growing up, and she just suddenly wonders if Rob's ever actually kissed a girl and. Um, it's just this moment where she thinks he's he's grown up so quickly and he's in such danger and there are just other elements of it. there's no sort of real joy in his life and it's just this real sadness from a mother and I thought that was quite moving that it was yeah and and rightly um, and I think it would be very easy um, for a, a lesser writer to kind of run away with himself a bit here and be like kind of forget the human element you know the mm. mother mother watching her son become a warlord um, is going to be a really, really melancholy experience. Mm. Um, but in many, many books, it would just be like, and then he picked up the sword and he killed every fucker. Yeah. Um, and it, and it wouldn't be dwelling on all these different little angles. So um, it's great stuff, but yeah, really sad. Yeah. Um, so we we go into a after after this this bit we we get to the point where Rob's holding a war council now to work out what to do next. Um, oh, we find out that uh, my guy, uh, Tallheart, uh, the whatever's called, the guy from that house, they they're all still up at the twins. They're uh, they're looking after the uh, they're looking after the twins. If you're wondering what what happened to those guys, anyway. Right, right, right. Um, Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so Rob's not sure who to back here, and there's all this different council going around. Some people are saying join with Renly. Some people are saying um, you should sue for peace with the Lannisters. Caitlin's Catelyn's actually. Um, counselling peace 
she's saying, look, now we can we can sort of sit back, um, consolidate our own power in the north, let the Lannisters and the Baratheons fight it out over the Iron Throne, and then go from there. Seems mm. fairly wise advice. It's, it, it's a good move, isn't it? Yeah. If you if you stop caring about the Iron Throne and you say, well, actually, we've got four fifths of the kingdom to ourselves anyway, so fuck it. Yeah. Like. Um, you know, there's a lot to be said for it, especially since you've got the neck, you know, fortify that. Yeah. Sit up north, watch the winter coming in, flick the V's at the southerners. I mean, it's it's worked for centuries. Yeah, and it does make sense. If it wasn't for the fact that the Lannisters have just killed your dad. So if you're Rob, and Rob <laughs> says, you know, there's no way we're having peace, not not until um, not until that is, you know, that, that debt is settled, I suppose. Mm. Um and he has the complete support of his bannermen. Um, you wonder what would have happened, really, if Rob had sided with Ke- with Catelyn here and said, let's go home. I think they've come too far, haven't they? And even though they've blooded the noses of the Lannisters, it's probably not quite enough to satisfy people. I mean, you've got people like Karstark, who's just lost his two sons to Jamie yeah. Lannister, and he's saying, there's no way, you know, he's saying there's no way he can possibly consider peace at this point. And... Yeah. Um, the great John ends is up it, saying, "Look, uh, I'm, I'm not interested in King Renly. I'm not interested in King Joffrey. The only king I want to follow is is the guy sitting here." And they declare Rob as the king in the north. They basically mm. they basically decide they're going to secede from uh, from 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 King's Landing. <laughs> yeah, but carry on fighting to reach it. Yeah. It's a bit nonsensical, isn't it? It's like on the one hand they've got their kind of we don't need any southern kings we've got a king in the north the king in the north um but then you've got you've got the fact that they're all equally hell bent on marauding into the south and killing as many people as possible and <laughs> yeah. you, there's this uh, you sense at this moment that um that it all goes a little bit unfocused you know you've got mission creep yeah you've got what you know what are we trying yeah. to do we're not trying to get Ned Stark back anymore cuz he's been killed yeah. Um, you know, we're uh are we trying to crush the Lannisters? Are we gonna take Castle Rock? Are we gonna turn up in are we gonna try and take the Iron Throne? Or are we just running around the south with swords killing people because our our sons have been killed? Yeah. And that's that's exactly the point that Catelyn's trying to make, isn't it? This you're absolutely right about mission creep because she says we you called the banners and we came south to get Ned back and to get the girls back. Ned's died, we can't get him back. And you can trade Jamie for the girls, and yeah. and we've done what we've set out to do, and we can go, and we can go home, and no one else has to die from the north at least. Um, but you're right. There's just this, there's this feeling amongst the rest of the the, the group that these things have gone too far for that now, and it's it's yeah. time for you know that something needs some other kind of revenge. And this is the self-destructive flip side, isn't it, of that honor-based thing because mm. if you weren't i mean if you weren't so hell-bent on honor you just cut your losses and go home but because everything depends upon he killed my heir therefore i must kill him you know you make these really stupid decisions based on how much you have to you're gonna have to spend and how much you're likely to get back mm. as a result of such a campaign um simply in order to avenge honor yeah um and you know, I'm not indifferent to the fact that having family members killed by other people is horrific. Um, but you do sort of think: Are you not just raising the likelihood that all of your other family members are going to get killed as well? Mm. Like you know, you've lost you've lost one gamble, so you go in you know quadruple or nothing. Yeah, you're sort of doubling down. Yeah, 
or more than that. Yeah. Well, I mean, so so that's the decision that's been made, and uh, and we we leave the book with with Rob and his army deciding to continue to fight. Sort of an ending is that? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's, it's almost as if he's planned seven books. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of non-endings, <laughs> let's go to the final chapter. This is Daenerys. Oh, um, is it shit? Sorry. Yeah. Oh, you said that's where we leave the book. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I meant that's where we leave Rob in, in the book in this book. Oh. Um, so we go to Daenerys. Oh, yeah. See, now it just sounds like a one other big thing to happen yet um, in the in the book, and it's Daenerys. She is planning to burn both uh, Khal Drogo's body and um, the witch who burned him. She's going to burn her alive. Do it, taking the old, uh, you know. Tudor version. Uh, I was going to say it's called the Tudor solution, isn't it? The Tudor <laughs> solution. I, I suppose she's. Um, we we know which way she's jumped. Then you know, is this horrific sequence of events going to make her more or less humane? <laughs> Burning someone alive. Yeah. As, <laughs> as, I, I suppose it is. Yeah. It, it's Western Middle Ages solution to to witchcraft. Um, she's going to. Yeah. Gonna <laughs> do that. Um, but also, it's clear that she's thinking of throwing herself on this pyre as well, and. Um, Jorah is aware of this and he's trying to convince her not to do it um, and she she seems to think that it's all going to be okay and she's got a plan and she tells Jorah not to worry and I, go on I was, I, well I mean I was going to before we get to that I've just realised what's Jorah's angle on this does he fancy her like wh- why has he sort of become so loyal to her well uh, there's probably an element of that um, he is obviously he he considers dramatically older yeah he considers her to be a. I think he sees something in her insofar as her leadership ability and her strength which obviously he didn't see in Viserys and also mm. um, what's Jorah's way out I suppose I think he he's a he's an exile isn't he I mean I know in the series things are, other things have come out by this point I'm not sure they have in the book so you've got to be quite a bit careful but um you know, essentially, Jor yeah. Jor is an exile, so he needs to sort of, you know, back somebody else, and she's probably the best option, isn't she? Especially at the moment now, and I suppose there's an element of um, father daughter relationship as well, where he feels responsible for her. Yeah, yeah, I I can believe that. I just it's a really kind of weird sort of thing that I guess that I realise we haven't really spoke about very much. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, carry on. So he's he's preventing her from throwing herself on a funeral pyre and she's insisting that this is in no way an insane move and it's all going to work out fine. <laughs> yeah, and the most ridiculous thing about it is um, she's right. because <laughs> <laughs> Oh, fantasy novels. <laughs> <laughs> so she, um, she basically jumps on this pyre as well. And, um, I mean, it's so hot that her clothes burn away and I think her hair burns away as well. Um, but when the ashes, when sort of the fire dies down, and uh, and there's just ashes left, she is. Um, oh, oh her, don't forget her dragon eggs are in this fire as well. That's important because when they, uh... when they come to find her, she's uh, sitting there completely unharmed, apart from you know she's bald, I assume, and <laughs> um, and she's got these three real life baby dragons knocking about. It's happening. Pa pa pa. 
<laughs> it is, it is, isn't it? I mean, you know, this is dragons of the symbol of magic has returned to the world, and this is happening, and and not for nothing. But one of your major characters just lobbed herself into a furnace and come out <laughs> up three dragons instead of minus one life. Shut about. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, what does this do to? I mean, for a start, what does this do to the feel of the book? Because. Um, the closest we've come to this are shambling zombies and the odd sort of appearance of a of a white walker before in terms of magic but this is and something a couple of freaky dreams yeah i mean i think what what i'm trying to say is that the, the, the magic we've seen so far sort of has appeared and disappeared almost in a flash and we're back to normal medieval political intrigue but these mm. you feel these dragons have have arrived now and you know, all the scenes with Daenerys are just aren't going to be the same now because it's going to be much more like a fantasy book. Yeah, yeah, very true. And so I'm a bit like, you know, like I say, I've got a lot, of, lot of confidence in George Martin after reading this book. I think if anybody can pull it off, he can. But it's a big step change mm. to go from sort of a uh, a faux medieval kind of uh, political thing. To be in a faux medieval political thing with actual fucking dragons. Yeah, yeah. This is where he really uh, doubles down on the fantasy, doesn't he? And says, "This is the direction it's going to go in." Well, I, or, you, know, you tell me. I wouldn't know, but I, like, I'm, I'm sort of, I am interested to see how this plays into the fact that Daenerys has just shown herself to be less humane rather than more humane as a result of this thing and she now has three of these beasts which previously laid waste an entire kingdom yeah yeah that's right we have we've had examples of people spoken of in the past where these really are sort of the this world's version of nuclear weapons aren't they they are absolute super weapons yeah and and so this so what this is really is you seeing seeing like Kim Jong Il, but like the playground years of like you know he's been pushed around one too many times, and instead of becoming compassionate, he's just become a little seething ball of rage. Yeah. And then in the middle of one of his rages, he works out how to make nuclear weapons. Yeah, and it's like oh oh well, this isn't going to work out well for anybody. Yeah, because as another uh, element to da- Daenerys's character, um, one one of the key promises she makes the people who are still with her. Ah, uh, that the uh, the the rulers, the sort of the the strong Carls who've who've sort of become that you know have become their own leaders now and and left the group. She's promised that they're going to die screaming. So um, yeah, there's not Fucking a lot of compassion hell. there. Yeah, it's not not one to forgive and forget, is she? Yeah, you know, it's a it's a worrying moment. And there's a just as an interesting aside. I, I'm I'm not sure which book it is, but I'm pretty sure that. Um, George Martin begins one of the books with his, a dedication to I think it's it's someone it might be his wife and he he, he says a thank you for um for convincing him to leave the dragons in and it sounded it, I read that thinking oh he must have been in two minds about which direction to take this from here and this may have been the moment where he decided that this is a world that is going to be about things like dragons existing rather than just myths about dragons uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it could be. Well, I will see. I suppose we will. Um, but this brings us to the end of of a Game of Thrones, the first in George Martin's series called A Song of Ice and Fire. The bad news is Game of Thrones has ended. The good news is there are many more of these books to come. 
Bum, 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 bum. I am excited. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, we're going to dive straight into book two relatively, relatively soon. Um, so, if you want to, uh, if you want to continue the journey with us, we're going to do it in uh, the same way as we've done this. We'll break it down into ten sections, and then we'll we'll get through it and analyze it piece by piece. Um, but let's just pause to think about the Game of Thrones overall. What what have you made of this first book, Dave? Well, it's it's not your dad's fantasy. <laughs> um, that sounded a bit wrong when I said that. Um, um, what I mean is, it's not the sort of cheesy crap on which a thousand video games and and a hundred movies have been based. Mm. It's it's fantasy with depth. And I read something um, before I. Um, uh, before I uh, started reading it, kind of about it, where somebody said somebody was praising it and said the reason that it works is that George Martin's a proper novelist, yeah, um, and just happens to be choosing to write a story kind of at this time in this place mm. um, about these characters, and they're such good characters, and the plot's huge, and if if all of the seeds that seem to have been planted for storylines in this novel kind of grow and and start to intertwine like if he's if he's got the chops to bring it all into kind of um resolution this is going to be spectacular um it certainly has been so far you know like it's every time you think that it's just going to be at a certain scale it kind of opens up and opens up and opens up some more Mm. um so i've really enjoyed it um, and I'm not, you know, I'm not much of a fantasy genre fan. I don't mind it, but it, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't grab me for being what it is. Um, but I'm a fan of good characters and good storylines, and um, and you know, all of that. And that's what this has got. It's fantastic. Excellent. Um, if you've got your own view on um, on the book as a whole, or if you want to give us a, a little bit of a heads up on what to expect in the in the next book, which is a Clash of Kings. Uh, you can send your feedback to us. Uh, our email address is sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com or you can uh, find us on Twitter and we are at sharkliveroil. Until next time, Dave. Until next time, Matt. Close the book. Just kick back and relax and get ready for the next one. <laughs> <laughs> I was born ready. <laughs> See you then. <laughs>